Section 40 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex Foster. L'Assommoir by Émile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Second part of chapter 9. And when she returned to her seat, which was almost immediately, she changed the conversation. The blacksmith had doubtless begged her not to ask Gervaise for money, but in spite of herself she again spoke of the debt at the expiration of five minutes. Oh! she had foreseen long ago what was now happening. Coupeau was drinking all that the laundry business brought in, and dragging his wife down with him. Her son would never have loaned the money if he had only listened to her. By now he would have been married, instead of miserably sad, with only unhappiness to look forward to for the rest of his life. She grew quite stern and angry, even accusing Gervaise of having schemed with Coupeau to take advantage of her foolish son. Yes, some women were able to play the hypocrite for years, but eventually the truth came out. "'Mama! Mama!' again called Gouget, but louder this time. She rose from her seat, and when she returned she said as she resumed her lace-mending, "'Go in. He wishes to see you.' Gervaise, all in a tremble, left the door open. This scene filled her with emotion, because it was like an avowal of their affection before Madame Gouget. She again beheld the quiet little chamber with its narrow iron bedstead, and papered all over with pictures, the whole looking like the room of some girl of fifteen. Gouget's big body was stretched on the bed. Mother Coupeau's disclosures and the things his mother had been saying seemed to have knocked all the life out of his limbs. His eyes were red and swollen, his beautiful yellow beard was still wet. In the first moment of rage he must have punched away at his pillow with his terrible fists, for the ticking was split and the feathers were coming out. "'Listen, Mamma's wrong,' he said to the laundress in a voice that was scarcely audible. "'You owe me nothing. I won't have it mentioned again.' He raised himself up and was looking at her. Big tears at once filled his eyes. "'Do you suffer, Monsieur Gouget?' murmured she. "'What is the matter with you? Tell me.' "'Nothing. Thanks. I tired myself with too much work yesterday. I will rest a bit.' Then, his heart breaking, he could not restrain himself, and burst out, "'Mon Dieu! Ah, mon Dieu! It was never to be. Never. You swore it. And now it is. It is. Ah, it pains me too much. Leave me.' and with his hand he gently and imploringly motioned to her to go. She did not draw nearer to the bed. She went off as he requested her to, feeling stupid, unable to say anything to soothe him. When in the other room she took up her basket, but she did not go home. She stood there trying to find something to say. Madame Gouget continued her mending without raising her head. It was she who at length said, "'Well, good-night.' Send me back my things, and we will settle up afterwards. Yes, it will be best so. Good night, stammered Gervaise. She took a last look around the neatly arranged room, and thought, as she shut the door, that she seemed to be leaving some part of her better self behind. She plodded blindly back to the laundry, scarcely knowing where she was going. When Gervaise arrived, she found Mother Coupeau out of her bed, sitting on a chair by the stove. Gervaise was too tired to scold her. Her bones ached as though she had been beaten, and she was thinking that her life was becoming too hard to bear. 
surely a quick death was the only escape from the pain in her heart. After this Gervaise became indifferent to everything. With a vague gesture of her hand she would send everybody about their business. At each fresh worry she buried herself deeper in her only pleasure, which was to have her three meals a day. The shop might have collapsed. So long as she was not beneath it she would have gone off willingly without a chemise to her back. And the little shop was collapsing, not suddenly, but little by little, morning and evening. One by one the customers got angry and sent their washing elsewhere. Monsieur Madinier, Mademoiselle Romanjou, the Boches themselves had returned to Madame Fauconnier, where they could count on great punctuality. One ends by getting tired of asking for a pair of stockings for three weeks straight, and of putting on shirts with grease stains dating from the previous Sunday. Gervaise, without losing a bite, wished them a pleasant journey, and spoke her mind about them, saying that she was precious glad she would no longer have to poke her nose into their filth. The entire neighbourhood could quit her. That would relieve her of piles of stinking junk, and give her less work to do. Now her only customers were those who didn't pay regularly, the street-walkers, and women like Madame Gaudron, whose laundry smelled so bad that not one of the laundresses on the Rue Neuve would take it. She had to let Madame Putois go, leaving only her apprentice, squint-eyed Augustine, who seemed to grow more stupid as time passed. Frequently there was not even enough work for the two of them, and they sat on stools all afternoon, doing nothing. Whilst idleness and poverty entered, dirtiness naturally entered also. One would never have recognized that beautiful blue shop, the colour of heaven, which had once been Gervaise's pride. Its window-frames and panes, which were never washed, were covered from top to bottom with the splashes of the passing vehicles. On the brass rods in the windows were displayed three grey rags left by customers who had died in the hospital. And inside it was more pitiable still. The dampness of the clothes hung up at the ceiling to dry had loosened all the wallpaper. The pompadour chintz hung in strips like cobwebs covered with dust. The big stove, broken and in holes from rough use of the poker, looked in its corner like the stock-in-trade of a dealer in old iron. The work-table appeared as though it had been used by a regiment, covered as it was with wine and coffee-stains, sticky with jam, greasy from spilled gravy. Gervaise was so at ease among it all that she never even noticed the shop was getting filthy. She became used to it all, just as she got used to wearing torn skirts and no longer washing herself carefully. The disorder was like a warm nest. Her own ease was her sole consideration. She did not care a pin for anything else. The debts, though still increasing, no longer troubled her. Her honesty gradually deserted her. Whether she would be able to pay or not was altogether uncertain, and she preferred not to think about it. When her credit was stopped at one shop, she would open an account at another shop close by. She was in debt all over the neighbourhood. She owed money every few yards. To take merely the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, she no longer dared pass in front of the grocers, nor the charcoal dealers, nor the greengrocers, and this obliged her, wherever she required to be at the wash-house, to go round by the Rue des Poissonniers, which was quite ten minutes out of her way. The tradespeople came and treated her as a swindler. One evening the dealer from whom she had purchased Lantier's furniture made a scene in the street. Scenes like this upset her at the time, but were soon forgotten, and never spoiled her appetite. What a nerve to bother her like that, when she had no money to pay! They were all robbers, anyway, and it served them right to have to wait. Well, she'd have to go bankrupt, but she didn't intend to fret about it now. 
Meanwhile, Mother Coupeau had recovered. For another year the household jogged along. During the summer months there was naturally a little more work, the white petticoats and the cambric dresses of the street-walkers of the exterior boulevard. The catastrophe was slowly approaching. The home sank deeper into the mire every week. There were ups and downs, however, days when one had to rub one's stomach before the empty cupboard, and others when one ate veal enough to make one burst. Mother Coupeau was forever being seen in the street, hiding bundles under her apron, and strolling in the direction of the Pawn Palace in the Rue Polonco. She strutted along with the air of a devotee going to Mass, for she did not dislike these errands. Haggling about money amused her. This crying up of her wares like a second-hand dealer tickled the old woman's fancy for driving hard bargains. The clerks knew her well and called her Mama Four Francs, because she always demanded four francs when they offered three, on bundles no bigger than two sous' worth of butter. At the start, Gervaise took advantage of good weeks to get things back from the pawn-shops, only to put them back again the next week. Later she let things go altogether, selling her pawn-tickets for cash. One thing alone gave Gervaise a pang. It was having to pawn her clock to pay an acceptance for twenty francs to a bailiff who came to seize her goods. Until then she had sworn rather to die of hunger than to part with her clock. When Mother Coupeau carried it away in a little bonnet-box, she sunk onto a chair, without a particle of strength left in her arms, her eyes full of tears, as though a fortune was being torn from her. But when Mother Coupeau reappeared with twenty-five francs, the unexpected loan, the five francs profit consoled her. She at once sent the old woman out again for four sous' worth of brandy in a glass, just to toast the five-franc piece. The two of them would often have a drop together when they were on good terms with each other. Mother Coupeau was very successful at bringing back a full glass hidden in her apron pocket without spilling a drop. Well, the neighbours didn't need to know, did they? But the neighbours knew perfectly well. This turned the neighbourhood even more against Gervaise. She was devouring everything. A few more mouthfuls and the place would be swept clean. In the midst of this general demolishment, Coupeau continued to prosper. The confounded tippler was as well as he could be. The sour wine and the vitriol positively fattened him. He ate a great deal, and laughed at the stick lawyer, who accused drink of killing people, and answered him by slapping himself on the stomach, the skin of which was so stretched by the fat that it resembled the skin of a drum. He would play him a tune on it, the glutton's vespers, with rolls and beats loud enough to have made a quack's fortune. Laurier, annoyed at not having any fat himself, said that it was soft and unhealthy. Coupeau ignored him, and went on drinking more and more, saying it was for his health's sake. His hair was beginning to turn grey, and his face to take on the drunkard's hue of purplish wine. He continued to act like a mischievous child. Well, it wasn't his concern if there was nothing about the place to eat. When he went for weeks without work he became even more difficult. Still, he was always giving Lantier friendly slaps on the back. People swore he had no suspicion at all. Surely something terrible would happen if he ever found out. Madame Lorat shook her head at this. His sister said she had known of husbands who didn't mind at all. Lantier wasn't wasting away either. He took great care of himself, measuring his stomach by the waistboard of his trousers, with the constant dread of having to loosen the buckle or draw it tighter, for he considered himself just right, and out of coquetry neither desired to grow fatter nor thinner. 
That made him hard to please in the matter of food, for he regarded every dish from the point of view of keeping his waist as it was. Even when there was not a sou in the house, he required eggs, cutlets, light and nourishing things. Since he was sharing the lady of the house, he considered himself to have a half-interest in everything, and would pocket any franc pieces he saw lying about. He kept Gervaise running here and there, and seemed more at home than Coupeau. Nana was his favourite, because he adored pretty little girls, but he paid less and less attention to Etienne, since boys, according to him, ought to know how to take care of themselves. If anyone came to see Coupeau while he was out, Lantier, in short sleeves and slippers, would come out of the back room with the bored expression of a husband who has been disturbed, saying he would answer for Coupeau, as it was all the same. Between these two gentlemen, Gervaise had nothing to laugh about. She had nothing to complain of as regard her health, thank goodness. She was growing too fat. But two men to cuddle was often more than she could manage. Ah, mon Dieu! One husband is already too much for a woman. The worst was that they got on very well together, the rogues. They never quarrelled. They would chuckle in each other's faces as they sat of an evening after dinner, their elbows on the table. They would rub up against one another all the live-long day, like cats which seek and cultivate their pleasure. The days when they came home in a rage, it was on her that they vented it. Go it! Hammer away at the animal! She had a good back. It made them all the better friends when they railed together. And it never did for her to give them tete for tat. In the beginning, when one of them yelled at her, she would appeal to the other. But this seldom worked. Coupeau had a foul mouth and called her horrible things. Lantier chose his insults carefully, but they often hurt her more. But one can get used to anything. Soon their nasty remarks and all the wrongs done her by these two men slid off her smooth skin like water off a duck's back. It was even easier to have them angry, because when they were in good moods they bothered her too much, never giving her time to get a bonnet ironed. Yes, Coupeau and Lantier were wearing her out. The zinc-worker, sure enough, lacked education, but the hatter had too much, or at least he had education in the same way that dirty people have a white shirt with uncleanliness underneath it. One night she dreamt that she was on the edge of a wall. Coupeau was knocking her into it with a blow of his fists, while Lantier was tickling her in the ribs to make her fall quicker. Well, that resembled her life. It was no surprise if she was becoming slipshod. The neighbours weren't fair in blaming her for the frightful habits she had fallen into. Sometimes a cold shiver ran through her, but things could have been worse, so she tried to make the best of it. Once she had seen a play in which the wife detested her husband, and poisoned him for the sake of her lover. Wasn't it more sensible for the three of them to live together in peace? In spite of her debts and poverty, she thought she was quite happy, and could live in peace if only Coupeau and Lantier would stop yelling at her so much. Towards the autumn, unfortunately, things became worse. Lantier pretended he was getting thinner, and pulled a longer face over the matter every day. He grumbled at everything, sniffed at the dishes of potatoes, a mess he could not eat, he would say, without having the colic. The least jangling now turned to quarrels, in which they accused one another of being the cause of all their troubles, and it was a devil of a job to restore harmony before they all retired for the night. End of second part of chapter 9 Recorded by Alex Foster, www.alexfoster.me.uk.